Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to the Gospel according to Luke, and turning to Luke chapter 1. And we'll begin our reading at verse 57. Luke chapter 1 at verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Well, Christmas is a time of the year uh, when Christians will gather together to celebrate uh, the birth of Jesus into this world. And uh, when we turn to the Gospels, when we turn to our Bibles, uh, we read many records of Uh, how people reacted uh, to the birth of Jesus. You think of Mary's reaction uh, when she is told uh, that she will be with child, that the Holy Spirit will come upon her and she will have a child. Uh, You think about Joseph's reaction. We are told how Joseph himself uh, is confronted by an angel about these events. There's the reaction of Herod. Uh, how he is told that there is a child who is born king of the Jews uh, and that uh, the wise men have come to worship him. There are many that react. There are the shepherds uh, who are keeping watch of their flock by night. 
But this morning, I want us to turn to another uh, reaction uh, to the news of the coming of Jesus into this world. We want to look at the reaction of a priest, uh, a man named Zachariah. And we want to consider how he reacts to what he understands is unfolding before him and how it evokes praise on his behalf. And so as we're turning this morning, we're looking at how one man reacts to the coming of Jesus into this world and the praise uh, that uh, responds uh, from it. When we look at Luke's uh, gospel, Luke's gospel is, uh, it's astounding how it begins, really, when you stop and think about it. You have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew's gospel begins in a way that you would expect uh, if you were a Jew. It begins with a genealogy. Tell me where he comes from, then tell me who he is. Mark's gospel also makes sense. Tell me what he does. Mark begins basically with the dawning of Jesus' public ministry. John's gospel begins stepping back and looking at the big picture. What are we talking about when we talk about Jesus? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. Luke's gospel doesn't begin in any of those ways. It doesn't even begin with Jesus. It begins, rather, in the temple with this man named Zechariah serving. And Zechariah is an old man, a righteous man, who is told that he and his elderly wife are going to have a child. Zechariah is astounded. He stumbles over this news and he says, how shall I know this? Uh, since both me and my wife are old, we're past the age of bearing children. And you remember that the angel says, as a result of his response, he will not be enabled to speak. He will be silent until the time comes for this child to be born. But the child that he is going to have is destined for greatness. He is destined for greatness in many ways. And for that reason, he is told the child that you are going to have, you shall call John. That the naming of the child is something that is given to God, calls attention to the uniqueness of John. When you step back and you think about the significance of naming things, the significance of giving a name to something highlights one's authority over it. Uh, it also highlights one's responsibility towards it, one's relationship that is uniquely being established. In the beginning, when Adam uh, was in the garden, you remember that God told him to name the animals. That communicated Adam's authority in the garden, but also his responsibility as a steward in God's garden. He was to govern God's creation. And so having authority, he was to name the animals. That also explains why symbolically, parents are the ones that name their children. Parents have an authority over their children. They have a responsibility uh, towards their children. There is a unique relationship that exists between parent and child. And so parents are the ones that name their children. But there are unique or rare occasions in the Bible where God takes that prerogative himself because the child that is going to be born has a unique calling. 
And God himself says, because of their unique relationship to me, I will give the name for this child. And so he tells Zechariah, you're going to call this child John. Because John means gracious, or God is gracious. And that's what I want you to realize about your child. That God's grace is going to begin to be manifested through his ministry. Zechariah was told by the angel that his son was destined for greatness in two ways. One, because he would turn the hearts of the people to the Lord. He would be an instrument in the Lord's revival of his people. He would be an instrument in causing the people to turn to the Lord, to be, to be repentant and to be seeking God with penitent hearts. But John's greatness was seen in another way as well. Not only would he have a baptism of repentance, but John's true greatness was his position. He would come to prepare the way for the Lord. And so if you go back to the beginning in Luke chapter 1, it says in verse 17, And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What was John's calling? John's calling was to prepare the people to meet with their God. That God was coming to his people. And so when the angel comes to Zechariah with all of this news, and Zechariah stumbles by saying, how shall I know that this is going to happen? He is made silent until the time of the birth. In time, it does tell us that his wife Elizabeth does give birth to a son. Uh, the community rejoices. They come around this elderly couple uh, rejoicing in the, the provision of God's grace. It's a time of rejoicing. But because John, uh, Zechariah can't speak, they go to the mother Elizabeth when the child is to be circumcised. Now the name is to be publicly unveiled and they expect and they already are referring to this child as Zechariah. But Elizabeth objects to that and says, no, his name is to be John. This, this doesn't make sense to the community because it's the custom to name one's child after a family member, most often a father. But when they go to Zechariah about this, he has a written tablet and he writes his name is John. The priest who couldn't believe that he could become a father in his old age has now come to the point where he sees God's hand at work and he embraces it and says, we are calling him John because God is gracious. This is the Zechariah that we want to look at this morning. It tells us that when he does that, when he acknowledges this is the working of God, that his tongue was loosed and he was able to speak again. But it's striking what he says when his tongue is loosed. It tells us that he began to bless the Lord. You young people, sometimes when you come into the house, uh, you might be really excited about what just transpired. Maybe you were out playing a game uh, or maybe you were out for a hike. But you open the door, and as soon as you open the door, you say, Hey, Mom, guess what? We won. 
I got the gold. Or you say, hey mom, guess what? We saw a rabbit, or we saw an owl out in the woods. The first thing that bubbles up is what you're most excited about. And here, what is it that John is most excited about? Or what is it that Zachariah is most excited about? The community is excited that this man is a father. This man has a child. He has a son that they're calling John. But the first words that Zechariah is bubbling up with is praise of God. Because he is centered, he is, he is focused on God's glory being unveiled through it. And so he sees the birth of John as the beginning of the gears turning. That, that John's birth is setting in motion something bigger. And so he begins to praise God for it because he sees God's hand at work. And this morning, we want to just look at the first part of what Zechariah is saying. It's, it's striking that when you look at this, as Luke is writing this under the inspiration of the Spirit, he could have simply said that he was praising and blessing God's name and left it at that. But by the leading of the Spirit, Luke includes not only that he was praising God, but what he was praising God about. He includes the content of his praise. And so we want to think about how Zechariah praises the Lord uh, as this is all taking place. We're only looking at the first few verses this morning, but as we look at this prophecy, you'll notice that there are, there's a, a bookends, really, to what he is saying. In both verses 68 and in verses 78, the, the language revolves around the Lord's visitation. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us. And then at verse 78, he says, because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us. Why is Zechariah praising God? It's because of God's visitation. What does it mean when he says God's visitation has come upon us? If you go back in the Old Testament, when Israel was in Egypt, we're told that Moses was sent to the, the people of Israel. And Moses came declaring to them what God had said and did many signs before the elders of Israel. And it tells us that they believed what Moses was saying. And it goes on to say that when they saw uh, the signs and they believed, when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed in worship. What does it mean to speak about visitation? It's the idea of overseeing. It's the idea of taking notice of the problems so as to take action. When, when the people of Israel heard that God had sent Moses, they said, God has visited us because he has taken notice of our slavery. He has taken notice of our need. And now he has come to deliver us. And therefore, they worshipped. Zechariah here is praising God on the basis of the Lord's uh, taking notice of their need, of their situation, and coming to address their problem. Just as the Lord had done marvelous things for his people in Egypt, 
so the Lord would do marvelous things here by visiting them as well. Not only did the Lord uh, do marvelous things, though, uh, in the Exodus when he delivered Israel from Egypt, but the prophets themselves teach us that this was to point forward to a greater work of redemption. That the prophets spoke, for instance, of uh, saying this, as in the days when you came up out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. And so the prophets were saying, you can compare that, that act when God visited his people to deliver them to an even greater visitation that will come. So Zechariah here, his, his response, how does he react to the news, the situation he finds himself in? His reaction is one of praise. And his praise is based on the fact that the Lord has visited uh, his people. But we want to unpack that a little bit further. And we want to see the reason uh, for this praise. The reason for the Lord's visitation is really to bring salvation. And you notice that in verses 69 uh, through 71. He says, and he has raised up, not only has he visited us, but he has visited us to redeem us or to save us. In, in verse 69, it says, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of, our, uh, of his servant, David. Zechariah's praise is based on the conviction that the Lord's visit will bring a reversal of the state of affairs. When it says he, will, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us, he's speaking about God's intervening to overcome the barriers that existed. Why does he describe it as a horn of salvation? When you think of animals with horns, you think of bulls, oxes, think of a rhinoceros. What makes a rhino so dangerous? It's the horn. A rhino can uh, charge down anything in its path because of the power of that horn. That, that became a symbol in the ancient world to describe power, the power of a warrior or of a particularly powerful king. And it was used not just to describe great fighters, but it was also used even to describe the Lord himself. In Psalm 18, it describes the Lord is our horn of salvation, that God himself is our power to deliver us from the threat of an enemy. But this language is used particularly with respect to the, the house of David. We looked at that earlier this year when we looked at Psalm 132, that it speaks about the horn of the Lord's anointed. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, it says, The Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's what Zechariah is talking about here. God has fulfilled what he had promised. He has raised up uh, salvation in the house of his servant David. That was what was promised by the prophets. Again, Psalm 132 says, uh, his, uh, The horn that was to sprout for David... Uh, his enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him uh, his crown will shine. So David here, or Zechariah here, is praising God because God has raised up one who expresses the very power of God to bring salvation. One who is going to overturn the state of affairs. 
one who is going to bring about God's purposes in a marvelous or a wondrous way. We might wonder here who Zechariah is talking about. Is he talking about John the Baptist? Since everyone is thinking about John, since he's just had a, a child, but it's clear that he's not referring to John in these verses. Because John is the son of Zechariah, the priest. And the priests come from the tribe of Levi. But he is speaking here about the house of David from the tribe of Judah. He's not talking about his son John here. He's talking about the promised Messiah who is to come and to bring salvation. <coughs> And so, as, as Zechariah is led by the Spirit to speak, while everyone is excited about this old man having a child, his praise is ultimately at seeing how the gears are in motion now that go beyond simply the birth of a child, but what that child is going to do. That child is preparing the way for the Lord. And the Lord is going to come to bring salvation. That he is going to come in power and to overcome their enemies. Notice what it says in verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all of those who hate us. Now, it is possible someone could come and take uh, these verses and just rip them out of their context. And to think, it sounds like, it sounds like Zechariah is only interested in a political deliverance. It sounds like Zechariah just wants to get rid of the Romans. It sounds like Zechariah just has a temporary idea of salvation. Just alleviate some of these oppressors around us, the ones that hate us, our enemies that are ruling over us. But such a conclusion would be misleading. And it's misleading in a number of ways. First, because as you read through this prophecy, it's clear that Zechariah has the forgiveness of sins in mind. Because he says it explicitly there in verse 77. That John will bring about uh, a proclamation that will ultimately lead uh, to the forgiveness of sins and the knowledge of God's salvation. So salvation has the forgiveness of sins in mind. But it would also be misconstruing Zechariah's words because... Zechariah understands not only the guilt of his sin. Zechariah lives in a world that is dominated by sin. And Zechariah lives knowing that the world he lives in opposes the Lord and those who align themselves with him. And Zechariah wants deliverance from both. From the guilt of sin and from the domination of sin. And that is why he is rejoicing. The Lord has raised up a horn, the power of God, to bring salvation from our enemies, from those who hate us. But if we're really going to understand what Zechariah is saying here, we have to allow this priest to express himself as he does with Scripture. His words come from the life of faith. His vantage point is being expressed through the Bible itself. And what he means is nothing more than what the prophets meant. We read there from Micah chapter 7, 
And Zechariah's words align perfectly with what Micah himself was saying. Micah was a prophet who lived in the 8th century BC. Micah confronted the people about their, their moral evils and their social sins. And as a result, Micah announced God's judgment would come upon the covenant people of God. But Micah didn't only say that God's judgment was coming. He also highlighted the the problem of how they're being ridiculed by the nations. So the people in Micah's day had this dual problem where they're unfaithful to God and now they're going to be judged. But they're also being shamed by the people around them. The, The nations were ridiculing them because they're in this humble estate. They're a weak nation. If God is for you, why are all of these things coming upon you? It's in vain to trust in the Lord. Your weak God cannot deliver you from our power. And so it's in this context that Micah comes with his prophecy by saying, you are guilty and God's judgment is coming. And then he also says, and you bear the shame of the nations for adhering to the God of Israel. But as you come to the end of Micah's prophecy, it doesn't end in despair. We read in Micah 7, and you noticed that what was key is is that hope begins to emerge. But where does that hope come from? It comes in two ways. One, Micah says there will be hope because the people will come to their senses. And they will conclude God's judgment is just. We are getting what we deserve. And it says there in Micah 7, the people say, we will endure it. We will bear the judgment of God. But something else is said. We will endure it because and until God comes to deliver us. There's this expectation that because God is compassionate, He will eventually come to their deliverance. He will raise up his salvation. His power will come to their aid. And so at the end of Micah, there is this movement towards hope. Even while they wait on the Lord to come to their defense, they know that God is just, but they also know that God is their deliverer. You turn back to Micah 7, and it says there in verse 8, Rejoice not over me, Oh, my enemy. Rejoice not over me, oh, my enemy. While they're in this humbled estate of bearing God's judgment for their sin, the people of God are to hold on to this conviction that what the nations are mocking them about, ridiculing them about, rejoicing over, should not hold because it is not the end. The people of God are to bear with the judgment, waiting for the Lord's salvation. And so it says, rejoice not over me, uh, O my enemy, for the Lord will come to execute uh, their judgment and to plead their cause. Those who are in a humbled estate will be exalted. Those who are in a proud state will be brought down when God comes, when God visits the people. Now, when Micah says, rejoice not over me, O my enemy, who does he mean? Who are the enemies in Micah's day? 
Micah tells us who they are. They are those who in verse 10, it says, Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? Who is the enemy? It's those who mock the idea of adhering oneself to God. It is those who ridicule the life of faith, the life of devotion to God's word, the life of obedience and trusting in God's promises. It's the nations that were ridiculing the God of Israel. The enemy is clearly defined here. And so Micah is telling the people not to, uh, to be crushed by that ridicule, but rather to realize there will be a reversal. Their enemies will lick the dust, and they will see the wonders that God will perform. A greater exodus, a greater salvation. You remember in, in Egypt, I, I, will, I will show my wonders to Pharaoh. He will not let you go until I show my wonders. Micah says God will show even greater wonders. And the result will be that the enemies will come out covering their mouths and trembling. When they see that God has visited his people. When they recognize that God does oversee and take notice. When they see that God does come. To show mercy to sinners. And so it ends. The prophecy of Micah ends by saying. Who is a God like you. Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions. He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Do you hear that language? He will tread our, and down our iniquities like, a, like a, a horse treading over something, crushing it, but then casting it into the sea, just as the Egyptian horsemen and chariots were cast into the sea. So their sins will be cast into the sea. So Micah's prophecy coming with judgment and highlighting the shameful situation they find themselves in as a compromised people Micah ends with hope by saying, who is like God who does marvelous things? A God who will come to execute his works and deliver his people according to his mercy so that their sins are forever cast away and they are delivered from their guilt. That's what Zechariah means when he says, blessed be the Lord our God, who has visited us and redeemed us, who has raised up a horn of salvation for us, that we should be saved from our enemies, from those who hate us. What Zechariah is delighting in is, is that God is a God who comes to cast away our sins, a God who comes to save us from our iniquities, that would condemn us. But he's also a God who demonstrates himself. So that we are no longer plagued. By this question of. Is it in vain. To trust in God. When people around me. Say it's pointless. Looking to God. You know the way you're living. 
It's all, it's all for nothing. When the nations mock the idea of adhering to a book that was written so long ago, you know, it's really foolish to put your whole life based on something that was written so long ago. The people of God are anchored on this fact that God has visited us before and he has done it again. Zechariah's language here is, is really a teaching lesson for us because he's saying all of these things at the birth of John in anticipation of what John's ministry will achieve. He will prepare the way of the Lord. He will tell the people, behold, the Lamb of God. But John's ministry is ultimately pointing us to Christ. But Zechariah is talking as though it's a done deal. He has redeemed us. He has raised a horn of salvation. Salvation from our enemies. God's work is fulfilled. Uh, and of that we can be certain. So it is with us. We are to live on this side of the cross. Knowing that God has visited us in Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God became man, born of a woman, born of a virgin, born under the law, in order to redeem sinners. But now we live confident that our God is a God who will deliver us even from the domain of sin and from the opposition to the Lord as well. The Lord's power would be demonstrated in bringing uh, salvation from sin. When the ancient Israelites heard that the Lord took notice of their plight in Egypt, they bowed in worship in response. When Zechariah understood that God was now coming, he rejoiced and blessed God's name. When we think about the birth of Jesus, we're not just thinking about a manger. We're thinking about what that means God has come to save us from our sins. God has come to raise up the power of salvation in the servant of David. That God's mercy has been shown because he casts our iniquities into the sea, where they will be remembered no more. And for that, we can rejoice. That's why we can have joy because there is deliverance from condemnation, because there is deliverance from what we deserve by nature, because there is deliverance even from the speculation that maybe I'm not living rightly. When we trust in the Lord, we can be confident of the Lord's purposes and of the Lord's grace. Are you trusting in him for salvation this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about the words of this priest, we pray, Lord, that we would see how he rejoices in the unfolding of your purposes. We pray, Lord, that we would uh, as well be able to join in praise, knowing that our God has raised up uh, a Savior, one who is powerful enough to save, to conquer sin, and to deliver us even from uh, the condemning voices and uh, the doubts that would emerge. Lord, help us to know that not only there is a God, but that our God is a God who visits his people. And may we re rejoice in uh, how Christ uh, reveals uh, your glory. So go before us in Jesus' name. Amen.